Let's start with a word of prayer if we can. Our Father, we do thank you for your continued grace in our lives even today. We thank you that what you have done in our lives to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ wasn't just the beginning and end at the day of our salvation. It was the beginning of something that would increase and continue to grow, and that is knowing the greatness of your love, the immensity of your grace, and the privilege we have to be called your children. And so, Father, as we meet tonight, help us as we continue to look at how we share our faith, that as we face objections, people that want to talk faith down, that we will be wise and we will be careful and we will be certainly loving in how we present and pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Take your books, if you would, and turn to 9.1. I think it's on 9.1. Maybe 9.2. Yeah, it starts at the bottom of 9.1. Normally, I've been skipping the case study uh, just because because uh, there's so much to cover and so little time to cover, but I wanted to read this one to get us rolling because this is one issue that when we talked a number of weeks back that people acknowledged that sometimes the reason it's hard to share faith is we're afraid these things will happen. These types of questions will come up. So here's what happened with Craig. Bottom of 9.1, Craig has been building a relationship with Jack for over two years, and last week he finally had the opportunity to share his faith with Jack. Jack listened quietly as Craig shared the message of the gospel, interrupting just a couple of times to clarify things Craig said. What you said helps, Craig, but I still have a lot of questions about Christianity. For example, why do so many doubt God's existence? Since I've never seen him, I wonder if it's possible to be sure myself. And if God does exist, how can we be sure that a man who claimed to be God, Jesus, really was? I also have questions about all the miracles in the Bible, including the resurrection. My college religion professor made fun of people who took the biblical accounts at face value. I'm not trying to offend you. I just want to be frank with some of my questions about Christianity. And the question is, how do we help Craig help Jack? Now, granted, you read that case study, you go, that's not how it plays out. Because if, if, if Jack is asking these questions, he's probably throwing in a little Tabasco and a few other things along the way. He's not going to be that polite laying out those questions. So even this is a little skewed, but... The reality is, if you've had to answer questions like that with people, what happens when you answer questions like that with people that are asking those type of questions? What happens next? And you're like, I have no idea. They challenge you more. And honestly, one of the things that happens, you answer questions, and it usually leads to more questions. And sometimes deeper questions, sometimes tougher questions. Now, here's where I just start with this illustration because it has stuck in my mind for years from our days in China. Uh, there was a young guy, Ed, and I don't know if I've told you the story about Ed. I'll tell you really, really briefly. Um, we first landed in China. We were at our co-worker's apartment, and he went back to America for a month while we were trying to find an apartment for us. They had have All the apartments have guards, uh, assuming they're awake most of the time or not drunk at night. Um, but these three guards, the young, young guys, I didn't know their names. I didn't know much beyond Ni Hao when we first got there. So I named these three guards Ed, Fred, and Ted. All right? So didn't know who they were. But long story, very, very, very short. Got to meet Ed. Got to get to know him. He was a young guy from the countryside with just barely a high school education. Came to the big city to Qingdao to work, make money. And he was trying to teach himself English. So we struck up a conversation, little bitty one, and built a relationship over time. In time, through our Thanksgiving outreach, Christmas outreach there in Qingdao in China, and through other people befriending him, sharing the gospel, in time he trusted Christ. But I remember it was in June of 2007 when he trusted Christ. Sometime in the spring of 2007, he and I were walking. There was this really nice walkway along the Yellow Sea just five or ten minutes from where we lived. And his question was, what can you say to me, Hal, that will prove that there's, that God exists? And that was his question. What can you say to me that will prove that God exists? Because, again, one of the hard things with Chinese is, uh, I had a Chinese uh, professor one time, a guy who was a Chinese believer, say, the bridge track, like we have, and we had it in Chinese, is a helpful track, but there's a step missing. Because the bridge track assumes that there's a God and introduces you to Jesus Christ through that. Chinese start with, we don't even believe there's a God. All right, so there's an inter intermediate step to take there. 
And my answer to Ed that day, his Chinese name was Tang Guotao, but it's Ed, all right? Ed, Fred, and Ted, Ed. And, um, but my answer to him that day was, and he had been reading the Bible, been reading it in English because he wanted to learn English. I said, I can't prove to you that God exists. I said, what I can do is encourage you to keep reading the Bible, and I will pray that God will open your eyes so that you will believe that God exists. And I said, the only way you'll believe that God exists if God opens your eyes to believe what you read from his word. That's what's going to happen. So I said, I could try to give you reasonable, thought-out, logical arguments, but at the end of the day, I can't convince you, all right? That's going to have to be God. That doesn't mean, then, I should not have answered any questions. He just asked a wide-open question. He didn't go into some of these others. He just said, can you prove to me? And I'm like, uh, well, I could start with creation, but, you know, they're taught with their school system, evolution. So I could be standing by the Yellow Sea and say, well, let's start with the sun, the moon, the stars, and the ocean, and go somewhere. But that's not going to go anywhere very well. So I just simply said, keep reading the Bible, and and I will pray. And if you're really interested in knowing, God will open your eyes to the truth. And in time, that's exactly what God did. I'll never forget when he said, it's like it makes sense now. He got it. Well, it's not because I convinced him of something and I had a great argument to answer all his questions. At the end of the day, it is always God that opens the eyes and allows the light of the gospel to shine in. But God does put us in situations where we will at times have to answer objections, some of which are simple. Most of which, I shouldn't say most of which, some of which are also smoke screens. And that is a smoke screen because the person is asking this question, they really want to just stump you and get you to leave them alone. They figure if they can stump you, you'll be like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore, and you'll go away. So it's a polite way of saying, go away, you know, without saying go away. But then there are genuine people that, that want to know, and then there's others who want to engage you because they want to try to take you down, right? And we'll talk about that as well. Now, all that being said, when I, years ago, back in 1982, all right, my first year of seminary, many, many moons ago, I got a, came across this book, which was a really, really helpful tool. Um, tool for my own personal life, but then as we look at this now, it's this book right here, and it's an older version, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, which goes through the Bible and finds things that have been considered confusing. And before I write it down, let's go to the second one, because this is the one that's the better one. All right? This is the updated, new and approved version. You'll never find this one. You'll find this one in some used bookstore. I've got it in my library, but this is the new one. Same author, Gleason Archer. And I copied and pasted it out of Amazon, which I noticed later. said, that's why you need the, the new International Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. So they're trying to sell it, all right? But what this book does is it goes through, now from Genesis to Revelation, questionable text, things that seem like inconsistencies. Like I'll give you an example. There are times when Scripture says the people of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years. Other places say 430 years. Which one's right? Is one right, one wrong? Did the writer not get it consistent, so they're messing it up? Um, there are different things with genealogies, different things with numbers, and even questions like what you see up here. Where did Adam and Eve get their wives? All right? People have asked that question. All right? So if Adam and Eve just had two sons and one killed the other and had another son, uh, where'd they get the wives for these guys? And how did that not turn into something bad when they start having kids? All right? And, and so, again, those are some tough questions, and people will ask those questions. So I start with just throwing that tool out to you. Uh, you can get this tool if, you, if you're if you an e-book person or if you're a traditional, can't stand e-books, and you want the hardcover, it's like 20 bucks, but the e-book is like 9 something, nine seventy five or whatever. But a very, very helpful tool. Not just for... Um, it, it is a helpful tool to help you really see with confidence that God's Word doesn't have error. Because that's what we're starting with. God's Word is truth, and even though somebody may ask a question that might make us squirm, at the end of the day, we're always going to be able to go back to the Word and go, but here's the answer. Even if I didn't know the right answer at the moment. And I have no problem with telling somebody, I and mean, I remember teaching the guys in China this saying, if you don't know the answer, if you're not certain of the answer, by all means, don't wing it, because there's a good chance you're going to say something wrong, and then you're going to send them down a rabbit trail. So sometimes we just have to say, I don't know. And then you have a tool like this to look it up. And the reason I say that is because here you got a guy like this, Richard Dawkins. How many of you know who Richard Dawkins is? 
Okay, I mean, he is basically the the big name guy in atheism uh, today. He's an Oxford teacher, Oxford scholar, um, so he's a brilliant guy. And, and oftentimes, the most notable atheists are also brilliant people. And and Richard Dawkins is one of the spokesmen. He's written this book. I only have this book because I found it for fifty cents at a used book place. I wouldn't have bought the thing otherwise. But I wanted to see what he had to say. And what they, what you'll see that atheists do, and I'm just kind of setting the table as we go into answer objections. Atheists will do what often a lot of people will do. They will lump in a lot of religions together and say, see, they're all just the same. They all do these evil things. And so then they can lump Christianity with Muslims or what was done in the Dark Ages when the Catholic Church was putting people to death and the Holy Wars and all this kind of stuff. And they'll lump it all together and say, see, it, religion is just a crock. It's just going to mess people up. It's created nothing but turmoil in people's lives. Well, I would say, you're right. You're right. Religion has screwed up this world in a huge way because Satan's mastery. You ever stop and think, why are there so many denominations and religions in the world? Okay? Because, in part, if Satan can get us to keep away from the one by following 9,999 others, he's won the day. Um, or can make that one look not credible by all the other stuff that's done that even look like shoot, offshoots of Christianity, he's won the day as well. So when it comes to us answering the objections, here's what we have in our first paragraph on 9.1 and the overview. And and here's where I, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing like I don't do, but that second sentence, uh, yeah, second full sentence. It says, most individuals have honest questions that need to be satisfactorily answered before they will make a commitment. That makes sense. Um, it, it's like buying a car or anything else. They want to ask questions, and we should be willing to give answers, and I think we are. Our problem sometimes is when they throw zingers at us. You know, like you meet somebody for the first time and they say, well, this whole pres- predestination, free will thing, how does that work out? You know, and they're not, they're not a believer. Well, I'm telling you right now, believers have a hard time struggling through that one. Are you, you really think I'm going to lay out enough arguments to make it clear for this guy? And I'm going to show you in a minute from Scripture why that's going to be a struggle uh, for somebody who's an unbeliever especially. But for you and me, when it comes to it, Here's what we have to be willing to do, and that is the third sentence there in that paragraph. It's important, it says, that we know how to wisely and sensitively answer common questions about the gospel. All right? Keep that in mind. I don't have the scripture to show you. I'll just read it to you. Let me just read for you verses that impacted me when I was a pastor when we were in Maryland. I'm trying to find it. Where to go? 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. This is Paul writing to Timothy at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, Paul's life, and saying this to Timothy, and you can just mark the text down, but here's a good one to understand that what Paul told Timothy is still true for us. He said this to Timothy, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? Here's why. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, all right, Timothy, as a leader, as a servant, and, and we sometimes look at First, Second Timothy and Titus and say, well, we've made the mistake of calling these pastoral epistles, so then we conclude, well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't need that stuff. Well, what he's saying there is appropriate for all of us. Whatever servant role we have, we're reaching out with truth. We're not trying to beat people over the head and get them to say uncle with the truth. But we are to answer them, and we are to answer them with gentleness, with with a sensitivity. So that's what we're saying here, wisely and sensitively, but realizing at the end of the day, I can't convince anybody to believe the gospel. That has to be the work of God. God will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So... That's where we're trying to go tonight. We're going to look at a few of the scriptures. One in particular we'll camp out a little bit on is in Acts chapter 17. Now, I asked you a question for your homework. If, if you didn't get to the homework, if you didn't, you got you got time to think on your feet really quickly. Look at the sound bites, the very last one on the sound bites 9.1. It says, Some people won't come to Christ unless we can prove that Christianity makes sense. 
Agree, disagree, if you agree or disagree, why do you agree or disagree? You follow that? All right, Jan, go ahead. I disagree because the work of salvation is entirely God's. Okay. Start to finish. And so it does not depend. He chooses to use us. Okay. But their response does not depend on our fumbling or or expert delivery. Okay. And here's where, and I realize I, I put that in the wrong order. I should have put that first tonight because I've already said a ton of stuff and then I asked that kind of question. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I kind of tipped you off a little bit. All right, kind of set the table for that. But can you think of any scriptures that would back that up? Kim? They choose suppressors. Pardon? They suppress the truth. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. Romans chapter 1. One of the characteristics of an unbeliever is not only do they not want to hear the truth, they try to literally push it down. Push it down, push it away. All right? What else? Can you think of any other text? This is a goofy class. We bring these books in. It's almost like we shouldn't bring our Bibles because we got a book, all right? If you happen to have a Bible, I'm sorry that we don't have any extras in here. If you happen to have one on your phone, feel free to pull it up. Just don't look at your text. Don't look at your emails. Just pull up your Bible and let's go from there. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's foolishness. Okay, good. Well, we're going to go one chapter beyond that if I can get it. First Corinthians chapter two. Can I borrow your Bible? Yeah. First Corinthians chapter two. Thank you very much. Okay. Here in First Corinthians chapter two, it's talking about well, let's go back. I'm going to go back to verse 12. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. All right? It says this. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. He's telling us that you and I, writing to a church, the Corinthian church, we've been given the spirit of God so that we will understand what's been freely given us in God's grace. Then he goes on to say this. He says, this is what we speak, not in words taught by taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. So the reason you and I believe that this is God's Word and believe that even if we don't understand things in it, we believe that it's all truth, um, that's why we believe the God of the Bible and the truth of salvation. Now here's what verse 14 says, and this is where I would plug this into that statement on the soundbite. Some people won't come to Christ unless we can prove that Christianity makes sense. Here's what verse 14 says. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that are come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All right? There's two things that it says about that person. He will not understand these things without the Spirit of God, and also he will not accept these things. There's two parts to that. If you notice in that verse, it's not just that they don't understand it. Even if we could show them logically exactly what Scripture says without the Spirit of God, they still will reject it. They'll still suppress the truth. They still will not accept it. So at the end of the day, our goal is not to be the best debater with God's Word. Our goal is to be clear communicators of the Word so that God may, in His grace, open their eyes to the truth to believe it. All right? Thank you. Sorry. Oh, sorry. That's oh, right. Sorry, Michael. I thought maybe I just went through the wrong verse. So here's what we're looking at. You know, with Ed, I, I can think back to it. You can't think back to it. Me by the seaside, Ed at the Yellow Sea, asking me, so what can you say to me to prove that there is a God? And I had to be honest. I, said, I can't say anything. I mean, I was taught in Bible class years ago that there's these little, these theological proofs, these five theological proofs that the ontological proof and all these philosophical proofs. Problem with that is, you get a guy like Richard Dawkins, he's going to argue logic with you. He's going to argue you in the ground because he's going to think philosophical as well. And if he can knock those out, he's won the day, in his mind at least. And that's why ultimately we are trying to wisely and sensitively answer these objections but doing so with it rooted in Scripture and dependence on God to connect it to them. All right, so that's where we're trying to go. Now, that being said, I throw up this verse 
of these verses that we've had every week, and I just throw one thought at you for us tonight. I've wanted to keep Colossians 4, 2 through 6 in front of us all throughout the semester, and I keep coming at it in different angles. So I come at it in one angle here tonight. Why, at the beginning of these verses that we've looked at for weeks now, why when he's talking about prayer, and specifically praying for opportunities to share the gospel and clarity and communication of the gospel, why does he say in verse 2, at the very beginning, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving why is he just saying be be consistent pray and pray and pray but why does he tie it to with thanksgiving some reasons phyllis i would think part of it is because we get very frustrated with the task of sharing especially when people are trying to suppress we have brothers who work very hard to to suppress anything that we have to say about god and so if we have a spirit of thanksgiving, we're always grateful to God for giving us opportunity. I mean, that's, it changes our focus. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank it you. It's strong. Now, one thing I didn't do was, let's pull that verse away from what we know verses 3 through 6 says. And just say, he says, continue in prayer steadfastly and do it with thanksgiving. Why is he tying thanksgiving and determined continued prayer together? What, what could be a connection there? Because that will play into what's going to be said in verses 3 through 6. Yes, Jan. Be that we're believing him for the result in advance. Okay. Could be. I mean, I, I know I'm asking you a question because like, I'm like, I didn't get the right answer here. Which, which one's the right answer? Is right? this what you're looking for? Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, anybody else want to throw it? Just throw it out there. It's, it's all good. There's no wrong answer here in the sense of... I would think one of the things, and I don't know if it's what you're looking for, but that we didn't have the privilege to go to him. Okay. And um, that we're so dependent upon him and we know that he's the only one that can grant And I'm, I'm sitting here for a second. I'm sorry. I'll play a reason why later. Um, here's where I'm trying to go really simple and not theological. We can all struggle with being complainers about stuff like everybody else, all right? And we can be lacking in gratitude at times. But here's the whole point. Uh, Part of continuing in prayer is we are people who will continue in prayer because we're a thankful people. If we're a people that aren't a thankful people, we won't pray. And we're going to be, quite frankly, a really bad advertisement for Christianity. Because if we're telling people, being put into the family of Jesus, being put in the family of God through Jesus Christ, that gives us everything. And they're like, well, yeah, we saw that. We saw that with Joel Olstein. He tells everybody, you get everything. All right, you join the club, you're in the club, you're in the country club now. And you get a $10 million home, and Oprah Winfrey comes and interviews you. All right? But the reality is, here's where I'm looking at this verse going. One of the worst issues of credibility for us as Christians when it comes to having open doors for the gospel, clearly communicating it, is we can short-circuit that before it ever starts by being a complaining person at work, with neighbors or whatever, you know. I mean, one of the most convicting statements I ever came across was in uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. He was talking about the sovereignty of God, and he said, did you ever stop to think about how we complain about the weather because it messed up our plans for that day? And, oh, by the way, who controls the weather and sets the pattern of weather? So it's like, oh, wow, so that's kind of hard to complain about the weather ever again, you know, because ultimately... What we got on February 1st when we got dumped on snow that sat around to the end of February, beginning of March, that's what God wanted that day and, and, and all these different things. So when we're talking about the forgotten work and sharing our faith, one of the things that, that plays into us having an open door for the word sometimes will be a grateful heart in spite of life. Because everybody at work, everybody's going to complain about something. They're going to complain about the boss, complain about the workload, complain about whatever. But if we're the one that's not in that club laying it out, then there's a reason for them to want to hear what we share if God does open that door. Okay. Now, that being said, let's go to the scriptures we want to look at tonight. I've already gone through this. Oh, I did leave one thing off. 
What's the answer to the question? Central question, central issue. This is my, again, every week my shot in the dark at it as to what God wants us to do in this lesson. So my simple answer was, how do I answer unbelievers' questions with clarity, correctness, and I added one extra little adjective to describe it, patient compassion. Not just compassion, but patient compassion. Because sometimes people will ask questions and will throw objections that will frustrate us. And will make us feel like they're doing a smokescreen. And quite frankly, they might be. Um, but like Paul said to Timothy, challenge it with gentleness. Do it with patience because we're not the one to play God. God's got to play God. He's the one that needs to open their eyes and bring them to repentance. And here's the neat thing. Do you ever notice what Romans chapter 2 says about God's, about how God might bring us to repentance? Romans chapter 2 says... Sometimes God brings us to repentance by the good things in life. It's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. You know, we've always thought it's when God brings down fire and brimstone. You know, it's like the fire brimstone preachers. If you scare the bejeebies out of them, then maybe they'll trust Christ. But yet, Paul is even saying when he's starting to lay out his arguments in the first three chapters of how sinful people are, that sometimes what will grab people's attention is not to scare them out of hell and into heaven, but recognizing that God would be that good to people who don't deserve a good thing at all. That's what could bring them to repentance. And quite frankly, if they do come to repentance, that's what will grow in their understanding of God, is how good God has been. All right? So that's why, in my thinking, wrestling through this issue for myself was, how do I answer the question with clarity, correctly as best I can, with tools like Encyclopedia Bible Difficulties, if I don't know the answer, but patiently, compassionately, answering their questions, even if their questions can seem like they're just running down rabbit trails to avoid making a decision or avoid this conversation altogether, all right? Now, here's where I'm going to look to you a little bit to engage in some of these scripture questions that we've had in our, in our lesson. <clears throat> We're not going to look at the third one for sake of time because we've been looking at Colossians 4 uh, numerous times, but go to page 9.2. <clears throat> We've already alluded to 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 in previous lessons. But look, if you would, with me at these verses, verses 13 through 17. Peter says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this, again, here's what he says, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Again, Now, admittedly, uh, most of us don't face... I, mean, I would venture to say, if Paul were in this room and we said, this is the persecution that we have faced for the faith and we shared stories of how somebody made fun of us, somebody made a joke about our Christian called this church lady or whatever. Um, you know, I don't think he's going to buy into that being persecution. That's at best slander and even that it's pretty pretty it's pretty much on the misdemeanor level. Alright? So when when we're looking at this, yeah, we're going to face things, but not like what a Muslim who puts their faith in Christ would face. Uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia or Egypt, a friend of mine who grew up in Egypt met him in America when we lived in Maryland, and uh, he eventually trusted Christ. But it was, a, it was a tough thing for him. He lived outside of Cairo, and that's a hotbed of, of, of Muslim, Egyptian, Arab faith, all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was a difficult thing. Well, here's what it's saying. Be ready to share faith. But here's the two questions, and I threw it out to you to answer one of the one or the other. The first question or the second question. So I'll see if there's any brave souls that want to uh, throw out an answer to the first one. Why does Peter, when he's talking about sharing our faith with those who would reject us, why does Peter emphasize gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience in answering questions about the faith? Why would he say that? Why would he just say, tell them the answers? If our attitude stinks, they're not even going to go to the Word okay. and look for the answers. Do we become, is our, is our I think in America, I think this is like a duh question, is our natural bent in America to be defensive at times? You know, people take a shot, I don't get mad, I get 
even. I mean, it's almost like we can just say amen. I mean, it's like even. You know, everybody knows this answer, all right? But there's a part of us that will do that. Jenny, were you going to say something? Were you? I was. Yeah. I don't remember. Um, it was something along the lines of, um, yeah, no, I lost it. I'm sorry. Well, our message is Jesus, and okay. you can't communicate Jesus in anger or bitterness, so how we say things communicates as much as what we say. Our emotions and attitudes are part of our message. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and she brought up one of the key issues right here. Even though that's not said here, what does Isaiah 53 that we just had read to us Sunday say about Jesus? How did he respond to these things? He was a lamb led to the slaughter, but he did not do what? Didn't didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. Even when he could have, he didn't. He, he didn't lash back with his words. So to respond in this way, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Val. Ultimately, we're responding like Christ if we respond that way. Because our defensiveness shows that our focus is more on us than them. It is. And Jesus' defensiveness would have shown that, well, it's, yeah, really, I am God. In case you didn't catch this, I'm God, and now I'm going to call those 12 legions of angels and squash you. No, he didn't. He didn't respond that way, even though he could have. All right, very good. Uh, let's go to that second question. This one's the harder one because it throws this big old word in parentheses. You're like, what in the world is that? <laughs> Defending the faith, apologetics, is often looked at as something only trained or mature Christians can do. How does this passage refute that idea? In other words, somebody who is trained in apologetics, somebody who is a philosopher, somebody who's a deep thinker, is somebody who should answer this. But Peter is saying opposite, saying something different. Now, what is he saying to us? Be prepared. Okay. Who are to be prepared? We. Okay, all of us are. Now, does that mean that we have to know all the answers to all the questions? The answer to that is obviously no. Okay. But we can be honest and say, I don't know. And I'll kind of get back with you on that. And most people, if we're willing to admit, number one, I don't know a good answer for that, but can I get back with you on that? They'll be willing to do that. Because at least we're humble enough to not wing it and try to talk them down and then find out we worked ourselves into a dead-end street in the conversation. Okay? Now, let's go to Acts chapter 17, because this is really the text I wanted to camp out on for a few minutes tonight before we get into the article, because the article is very helpful and really lays out a large part of... Um, the key objections people will throw at us. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17. I'm going to ask Phil, would you mind reading those verses for us, verses 1 through 4? Sure. When they had passed through <clears throat> Amphipolis. Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Okay. Here is, and, and really it's going to go into an extended uh, section in Acts chapter 17, where then Paul is before the people in Athens. He's dealing with philosophical arguments later on. But he starts by saying, look at verse 2. It says, as his custom was. When he went to cities, when he was on his missionary journeys, he went to the center of religion in all these cities, the synagogue. And he met with people, and it wasn't to say, hey, my intellect is better than you, because I was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, studied, you know, like the best of the best. Um, Jesus had to change him on a road to Damascus to understand that all of his conclusions with everything he learned from Gamaliel, his conclusions were wrong. He had right knowledge. His conclusions were wrong. Jesus changed that. Now Paul is doing the same thing. He's coming to them saying, you have religion. You have the truth. You have the Old Testament. What you haven't connected it to is the Messiah has come. And here's who he is. But here's the tension for us. Verse 2 goes on to say, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. I'll just stop there. Remember I said with Ed, um, walking along the LC, I said, I can't prove to you this. All right? I can't prove to you that God exists. I can't come up with just the right argument that's going to flick a switch in your head, and suddenly you're going to go, oh, I got it now. Okay, I'm a Christian. But God's going to have to do that. But here, Paul is doing something with them that he did as his custom was, verse 2, that 
is informing us as to what we need to do as well. So, here's the question that it asked down there. What part did defending and explaining the faith have in Paul's evangelism? Why do you think he tried to reason with them? In other words, as we're looking at what it says here of Paul with these folks, with the truth, talking with them, why did Luke bring this to our attention that in in Paul's evangelism he tried to reason with them? What would be the reasons for saying that? That's in the Department of Redundancy Department. Yes? Well, it wasn't just that he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them from the scriptures themselves. The word of God is what's quick and powerful and able to change the heart of a man. He got him into the word. Probably most of them already knew the scriptures, but clearly he put them together in a way that they could finally understand that Jesus was who he said he was. Okay. Very good. And this is where I, I you're, you're hitting the nail on the head again as well here on this one. When we look at the, the word that he has there, he reasoned with them. Um, if I if I threw out the Greek word, you'd be like, what is that? But it's the word that sounds like the word for dialogue. Dialogue is a give and take. It's a back and forth conversation. The word that's used there for Paul is that very word that we get the word for dialogue. In other words, he didn't come in, smack him over the head with the truth and say, you must be saved, you know, sort of thing. He was willing to go back and forth and and show them that real faith isn't just faith in faith. Real faith is faith in the truth. And, And their conclusions were the problem. They knew the truth. But just like Jesus had to say to Nicodemus, how is it, Nicodemus, that you're this brilliant theologian but you have come to completely wrong conclusion. You, it's not like you're not even on first base. How can that be? Well, obviously we know he was not a regenerate man. He was not a man who had genuine faith in Christ. Same thing here. Paul is having a dialogue. So the point is, sharing our faith is not giving somebody a sermon. It's having a one-to-one conversation. It's a conversation that recognizes I'm a sinner they're a sinner. The difference is God opened my eyes to the truth, and I want to be careful with that truth to give them the chance to do the same thing. So keep in mind that this reasoning with them wasn't a theological debate. It was a simple face-to-face conversation. And unlike what I'm doing here, when I sat down a few minutes ago, um, when they taught most often in the synagogue, if you notice, when it referenced Jesus in the Gospels, he sat down, all right? Most often, they were the teacher was sitting down, and they were sitting down as well. And it wasn't like authority standing here preaching. And like we have these visions of evangelists and hellfire and brimstone, and they're just screaming and spitting everything out. So we think that that's what's going to bring somebody to faith in Christ. But Christ is literally like, and I hate to put it in such contemporary terminology, it's like sitting in a coffee shop having this conversation. All right, but obviously, it was in the center of religion in these cities in the synagogue. So it was a dialogue, but here's the other two words it uses. He was explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. But he reasoned with them, as Jan said, or Phyllis just said, I just forgot, Phyllis said, reasoned with them from the scriptures. All right, like one of you said that, I forgot which one. Reasoned with them from the scriptures. Because ultimately, if we're going to dialogue with somebody, it can't be from these these proofs that we've sometimes had to learn in churches. Here's the proofs that God exists. The ultimate reality is God exists because Scripture assumes that God exists. I mean, we can start with Genesis 1.1. You know, you talk to somebody who says, prove to me that God exists. And I'll say, I can't do that. If I had a Bible with me at that moment by the yellow sea, maybe I would have sat down with Ed and said, well, here's how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God doesn't spend a chapter before going, by the way, I'm here, this is who I am. He starts with, I exist, and this is what I've done, and this is what I've said, and this is what you must believe. Um, That's the way he's laid it out. And so for you and I, when we're reasoning with them, we're doing it as Paul did, that truth is what they must, and we must believe, not just faith in whatever they think they might believe Yes. Another thing that I thought of as well is he was reasoning and explaining where they lacked an understanding, but in doing so, he was appealing to their minds, not stirring up emotions. Absolutely. And and what have we done? And that's a great point, Val, because, you know, we have, uh, man, we could go on for a long time on this, but we won't do that tonight. Um, Any of you know who Charles Finney was? And 
in church history. All right, Charles Finney was central to the the, the tent meetings of the 1800s, 1900s, and and really, just so we understand, historically in churches, historically in churches, there wasn't an invitation given where people walked down an aisle. That is a relatively recent development in church history, like within the last 150 years or so. Now, that doesn't say that we don't expect that if people hear truth, they shouldn't respond to it. Yes, anytime God's word is preached or taught, there should be some type of response to it, a bias, whether that's worship, obedience, uh, doing what it says to do, whatever the case may be. But when we, when we talk about what Val just said, so often most of our presentations of the gospel have been to pull at people's emotions to get them to make a decision. That's why we used to sing all six verses of Just As I Am. And if that didn't get people down the aisle, we started all over and sang it again, you know? Or, or we got we had some people that were ready to bring people down the aisle. You know, bring your friend. If they got the head down, I mean, I'm not kidding. That stuff went on. Some of you know that. Uh, you know, get your friend, and if they look like they're ready, then you bring them down. And, and we talk them into that. And, and okay, there's, there's a point where, yes, we might be able to sense that this person is ready. But the dangerous thing, as I've said, is when we start to play God and we start to do things that may move on their emotions, that's a dangerous thing because then they make an emotional response and it may not be a a real response. That's why Paul was reasoning with them, dialoguing, which was a connecting of their thinking and did it with Scripture because ultimately that's what has to be done. If it's not with truth, if it's not looking at it thought through, we're going to get to that point in just a minute. If it's not done in that way, then we run the danger of them making a false profession of faith because it was based on emotions, not on the real truth, and that is thinking through that truth. And, and that's a key issue, very key issue. Anything else to add to that? Yeah, Phil. I think, too, like what we talked about earlier, everything in these verses to me speaks of... Uh, patience and perseverance mm-hmm. where he didn't just go for like 10 minutes he spent three whole Saturdays with these people yeah. and he explained he didn't talk he didn't preach to them like you were saying mm-hmm. and he took the time to reason with them and hear their objections and all this other stuff he didn't just show up in town one day and then hit the road the next night he spent like at least three weeks there from what they're telling us in this book so and he probably wasn't just slacking off during the week so you know it's not an instant results kind of thing Absolutely, you know, and and that's. Can I segue from that into our into our article, and then we'll come back. Go on page nine dot five. Uh, I'm again. I never ask who did the homework, who didn't, because I realize some of you are busy, some of you are working full time. Life's just nuts. Do what you can do. But if you got to read the at least the introduction, you read how Frank Harbor came to faith in Christ, and Frank Harbor years ago was not just an unbeliever. He was what? Now's the moment to test who read it. <laughs> cheesy way to ask who read the book Um, he was an atheist and he was a pretty staunch atheist From it sounds like from things he said and he says if you look in that third paragraph and I'm just going to read through this quickly parts of it he says you see I was once an atheist and was converted to Christ because of an aggressive Christian witness now if we stop there we think yeah someone just pounded him with the truth but if you read through the story if you read through his, his testimony there was a pastor who took time, and he says, he goes on to say, this pastor was ready with a defense for the Lord. He answered my questions. He supplied me with books to think through, books by C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Chuck Colson. He answered my questions. He preached the simple gospel to me with great conviction, but he patiently, patiently, truthfully, carefully presented the truth to my thinking. And as he comes to the end of part of his testimony, he says, as I studied Christianity, I also studied the major religions of the world. And then he comes to this conclusion, and and he explains, because this pastor did what he did, as Phil was saying, and as Val was saying, these two things together were patiently with the truth, walking through it with them, not appealing to their emotions, answering it logically. Here's essentially what I would say with that for you and me. You and I, we must be ready to engage their minds with truth so that God can open their hearts with the truth. We can't open their hearts. All right, We'll never be able to do that. If we try to do it emotionally, that's why uh, as time went on in my ministry, I, 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 how do I say this carefully? I wasn't really excited about evangelists when I came to town because too often evangelists did exactly the opposite of this. 
Too often their messages were appeals that were heavily loaded toward our emotions and, and, and it can somewhat disengage our thinking so that this person makes a profession of faith and two weeks after that evangelist is gone, this person has no idea what they did and they're right back to where they started. And we got a mess to clean up afterwards because we got a bunch of people who walked an aisle emotionally and don't know why the heck they even walked the aisle. So I'm saying that because we are not trying to emotion them in. We are doing what Paul did, what he did here in Acts 17 and consistently did. We are trying to answer their questions with honest answers rooted in Scripture so that as we are engaging their minds with truth, God may in his grace open their hearts to that truth. And that has to be the process. But that got out of whack in our churches in a huge way, where then the we sang certain songs, we had to sing certain songs again and again and again, get people to come down the aisle, and at the end of the day, if you notice, some people would come to a church like ours and go, you don't give an invitation, or you don't allow them a chance to come forward. And we would say, well, yeah, if you've seen it, you've been there enough, you're like, yeah, we do. All right, he says it up there, but it's not like we say, so if you're ready to make that decision, walk down this aisle or go back in the back, that doesn't get said. Now, obviously, if somebody is ready and they really, really mean it, they're going to search somebody out and go, you know what, you were saying there, I want to do that. So there's a measure where making it a little bit hard for them might not be all of a bad thing. Because if it's easy to walk an aisle and then go back to being regular who I was before, um, maybe I haven't thought through this enough. So we want them to think through it to a certain extent. All right, second question, and I'll pause for a second. Why do you think it says that Luke mentioned that Paul reasoned from the Scriptures? What principle can we take from Paul's example of defending the faith? We've we've already answered part of that. Our best answers must be rooted in Scripture, not simply logical proofs. All right? Now, let me just pause before we get into the article. Any questions, any comments so far? What we've been talking about? I hope you understand that the goal is not, and I'll just say this one more time and we'll move on, the goal is not to be the best theological debater. Um, quite frankly, if you are that kind of person, personality-wise, if you're a debater by nature and that's what you'd like to do with people, there's a good chance you're going to turn people off to the gospel. That doesn't mean, and here's where we go back to, we were talking about our sharing style, all right? So our sharing style might be assertive. Our sharing style, that may not be all bad. Because if you read the story about Frank, whatever his last name is, Frank Harbor, if you notice the very words, I caught this when I was reading it, that this pastor was an aggressive Christian witness. That doesn't mean he was an arrogant knucklehead. It just meant he was persistent. And he kept coming back to me, kept coming back to me. And, and sometimes it has to be somebody like that, all right, that does it now. That being said, let's go to the article, page 9.5. On your mark, I guess the rest should be get set, go. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead, ask that question, because Pete loves to listen to stuff, because he listens to it. <laughs> He's told me that. <laughs> so you said several times we were, we were talking against debating with these people, mm. but yet Pastor just announced we're getting ready to set up a debate with a Christian and an atheist. I so didn't know that. Yeah. Was that in the... Uh, that was, that was I, I missed most of both days because of being out, so I, I still haven't had a chance to listen to it because I had to wait until I got uploaded into our system. So, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. But part of that is... That's not all bad when it is intended to be like what Paul did. Paul in the synagogue, in a religious setting, he did have to, I'm sure, in the dialogue back and forth, had to show truth with error, truth with error, truth with error. Well, what can be the benefit for the church? The benefit for the church is it could help inform us, oh, I didn't realize that, I didn't know that. And I might face something like that. Now there is, so there's a value to it. Now, if that person who is on the side of the fence where we would be walks away going, man, I nailed it, uh, then we got the wrong guy in the batter's box, all right? Because ultimately, we want a person who is doing exactly what we just saw Peter said. You're doing it with gentleness, with respect. Sometimes some of these debates do get out of hand and they start fighting emotionally and 
how can I put it, stupidly? I mean, is that the right word? But that's what I'm saying. So, so it would be more for the church body, not necessarily you know, to invite William Jennings Bryant. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, it is. It's one of those things where ultimately, um, do I see... I don't always know what the motivations are for different churches doing it, but it can be helpful to teach us. It can be helpful to inform us. I didn't know that, so I'm sitting here dumbfounded because I'm stupid because I didn't hear it. So you were making this up, huh? You were making this up. Yeah, me and me and Jared were back there. (laughs) Well, one of the things too, though, is I just thought of this, girls. I probably was very cute. Um, um, (laughs) I'm used to you guys whispering. Well, we're whispering about stuff, so like this stuff. So, um, but no, one of the things that is also true is that people don't like confrontation. One of the things about debating with someone is they, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into a debate with you because I don't like confrontation. But if you're watching two other people, you're not in that confrontation, so you can watch it, you can learn from it, and but you're not necessarily feeling personally attacked, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And, and honestly, here's here's where I would liken it to. It's like somebody. I've known people like this, and I won't say men or women or who they are. I've known people like this that they love to get a JW or a Mormon to come to the door. And why do they love to do that? Why do they like? You know, here's the reality. Well, and <laughs> thank you for that testimony, Val, for doing. But here's the reality. If our goal is, and this is what we have to make sure when it comes to debating somebody with the truth, if our goal is their conversion, that's a good debate. If our goal is to win the debate, that's a bad debate. If, I, if my goal is to smack them down with the truth, and I'm going to counter their arguments, uh, a Mormon already knows how to answer the arguments about firstborn of every creation, and so Jesus was firstborn, and even if I go with this, they're going to have this because they've been taught to respond this way. If I walk away going, man, I nailed it, then I have missed the point of the debate. So if that debate starts with, and the person, and and again, this is the person on our side of the fence, how they respond, if they're responding like Paul told Timothy and like Peter is telling us to do this with gentleness, with respect, with concern for that person, compassion, that's going to come out in how they speak and how they respond with straight truth. But if they get, and honestly, I'll just be blunt with you, if they get sarcastic, if they do smackdown stuff, then I, I... I, I can't play God and judge your motives, but i got to say there's a part of that motive that's a mixed motive. All right, it, it gets a little murky in there then. Because then suddenly when sarcasm and, and little subtle cut-downs with the truth go in, um, suddenly the murky motives get murkier. Rather than I want to be in this debate so that genuinely I'm concerned that person hears the truth. And that person, like Paul with some folks, would argue that truth. Like we did in Athens. When he's got people who are deep philosophical thinkers, and he's got to challenge them on a very intellectual level, but yet not do a smackdown, um, because that's that's not going to work in their culture. It might work in American culture to walk away going, "Dude, I want it," but that's not our goal. Um, so I would say any debate, whether it's a church one like this, um, so maybe if you see this debate and we have this in our church, uh, be watching to see how does that person handle it. Because that will be very informing to us. And I, I do. Because I think, I think debates are mostly dispassionate by nature. Yeah. You know, it's not like... It's like when that Ken Ham debate was happening last year. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt like it was like... And it was good. I'm glad it happened. But it was most like, oh, man, Christianity needs to win. Good time. People were like, <laughs> yeah. People were like, oh, yeah. You know, like, we got to, like... You know, that, that's what they were hoping for. Right. Like, I hope he just embarrasses this... Right. So I don't like I don't always get that. Like that's just both I'm not a confrontational person. Mm-hmm. And I don't like right. I just feel like it's such a dispassionate environment mm-hmm. to like come down from that. Like whoever the atheist is that's coming in, I'm sure he's very brave. Mm-hmm. Because like to come into an environment like a church environment and I'm maybe I'm playing like the advocate a little bit here, but like to come into an environment where you know everybody already disagrees with you yeah. and like debate that takes that, some CEO, you know that that, that is a hard thing to do. And, and like, what are we hoping for? Like, if we if we show up, like I think it's like you're saying, like it's like your heart has to be in the right place. Yeah. Well, and I think that the person who is the atheist coming back, coming into the church setting, if he's a dyed in a wool atheist like a Richard Dawkins, 
He is coming in there to go, I'm going to take you down. All right? I'm not coming in there to make you go, hey, it's great to be in the atheist family. If you've seen the, uh, the stupid thing on Fox News, one of them, here's an atheist family, and it's a stupid mix, mix, mixed up uh, article about them. And, and I look at that and go, he's not there trying to make you be in the atheist religion. Let's all be happy together. He wants to take you down and go, this is really stupid stuff. All right? But again, over here on our side of the equation, we want to be clear with the truth. We want to be direct with the truth. But it's going to be seasoned with salt. It's going to be gracious words. It's going to be gentle words. So again, that person's going to have to say, God, help me rein it in and deliver it with truth and deliver it carefully because my goal is not winning the debate. I mean, I, I faced that in my early days of going door to door. I remember thinking times when I go, oh, man, I answered their question. I nailed it. And then I got convicted later going, who cares if I nailed it? I walked away and go, they didn't trust Christ. Stink, you know. That was the wrong thinking. And so that's where when we're looking at this stuff, and, and I, th- I think there's a legitimate setting for having those types of debates. It's informative to our church, and it can be hopefully redemptive for that person. Because there have been people in history who have been staunch atheists who being challenged by, like a Frank Harbor, challenged by somebody who took the time to directly with truth and gently, compassionately, sincerely, God used that to engage the intellect through the truth and then open their heart. But it takes time. Yeah. I guess... Since this conversation has been opened, you know, that's been on my mind as well. And I guess, you know, I'm, I just have to admit, I'm a little uncomfortable with it because of the setting. Mm-hmm. And when you see Paul debating in the synagogue, he's going to their turf mm-hmm. and debating there. And I guess I wonder about how expedient it is to bring that into oh, okay, I see our turf, mm-hmm. but did did Paul do that in in the house churches? Did he bring an atheist in to talk to all the people in mm-hmm. house church, you know, because that was there. I guess that's what gives me that a little bit of um, I don't think anything. So panic attack here, just, you know. I'm right. A little, well, it it gives you an unsettled yeah. feeling about it. Like mm, what's very, what's very what's the agenda? All right, and that's where we have to be careful. Uh, we have to be careful to have our church informed going into this that we're not really, we're not sitting ready to go, amen, and just like, you know, we're, let's say we're cheering for a Michigan game against Michigan State or Ohio State, let's go like that. Ohio State, Michigan State, and the Michigan State person is just nailing it, and Ohio State, we're just booing them and hissing, whatever. Is there an Ohio State person here? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so it looks funny, like, but that's, that's the point, and that is, um, Yes, Paul did step into settings, like in Athens, where he was stepping into their turf. And I guess what you're saying, you two ladies are saying, but we're bringing you know, sin into the house, all right, sort of thing. And, and that is, I don't think that there's anything inherently evil about it. I think the context is we wouldn't do that on a Sunday morning during what we would call our worship time. Um, having that in a different setting, I think, can be legitimate as long as it's done carefully. Yes? I think it's a great opportunity. I, I get what you're saying, too, as far as... We're bringing somebody who is against our beliefs in to talk to us, and what? How is that going to convert anybody to Christianity? But if we bring our atheist friends and our atheist coworkers in there, and and it it might not convert them, but it can at least open up uh, a dialogue to where we can we where you can talk about it later. About it, 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 whereas you might not have before, you might not have had any reason to before. So it's not necessarily, I'm, I'm not sure because you have some friends, I think it's right? more for our guests. Right. Yeah. Well, I admit, and this may be yeah. part of the uncomfortableness, is it can be a risky thing because what if our side doesn't do it very well? Then what happens to those people we bring in who don't know the Lord, or even for us, it shakes our faith. Sure but it's still, it's still. <laughs> What's that? I'm sure you'll define. Yeah. I think you should do it. Oh, I yeah. think you know it's you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's part of why I didn't know. No, but even even if he doesn't do well, which I mean, like he's got the Word of God, he's going to do great. Um, but even if he doesn't do well in whatever way he chokes, he starts singing with McDonald's. I don't know, mm-hmm. but. It's still going to open the door for you, so you can say, you know what? Another way I might have thought about this is like this. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You know, like, but it's still, you know, even if you didn't, you can, you can help supplement. 
Yeah. Well, and, and that's where, again, you know, I obviously I've blown a gasket here because I didn't know that this was set on Saturday or Sunday. Sorry. No, it's all, it's all good. No, this is the context. This is what we're talking about. And that is we are engaging people, and we're engaging people because in this article it has 10 different things, 10 different arguments that people will either in statement or in question. The church is filled with hypocrites, or Jesus can't be the only way to God. We're going to come back to that issue next week, so let's make that our segue from this week to next week. Oh, no. Who is this? There is no next week. I said that. I even gave you the homework. you got two weeks to get this lesson done, so no excuses to me tonight. All right? But let me just say this. Okay? And here's nifty little... i got to throw this up here. Gotta love when you find artwork to go along with it. All right, so here's the ten hurdles. All right, I was throwing them all up there. Hurdle number four is Jesus can't be the only way to God. Period. All right. Next week or two weeks? I'll say it again. Two weeks from now, when we come back. We're gonna engage a little bit of that of the whole Joel Olstein and and Oprah when she asks him that question in his house and he kind of squirms through it. And, uh, and then there's other nifty things you can find on YouTube. Some dude that does this 15-minute long one that weaves MacArthur and all this stuff in there from Joel Olstein to everything in between. But the whole point is this. That's, that is something that it's like going into Starbucks and going, okay, they got Oprah quotes all over their Starbucks cups now. Are you serious? Just because she was a, this talk show host. But you know what? She's got millions of people in America coming to that conclusion. Jesus can't be you know, that's just, that's ridiculous. And, and she's asking those questions because she's already starting with, that can't be true. That's ridiculous. Well, and that's going to be a huge one because that sounds really restrictive. That sounds very uh, bigoted. I mean, that's where it's going to be thrown up. Very bigoted to say that Jesus is the only way. But we got to hang on for dear life because that is the truth. John 14, 6 and, if he, and, and uh, Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given above men whereby we must be saved. All right? So that's where, how do we answer these questions? If you notice in these ten questions, if you didn't get to look at them, I just end with this. Below each of these questions, they give you good resources, very helpful resources you can draw from to help dig deeper. But also that book I mentioned, Encyclopedia, or International, called International Encyclopedia, Bible difficulties. Let's pray. Let's go home. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you that not only did somebody engage our minds with the truth, but you, by your grace, opened our hearts to that truth. And I would pray, Father, that by your grace we will be bold with that truth and yet careful and loving with that truth so that you may do that with others you put in our lives.